I'm an alcoholic and my name is Brian Brian. And uh, privileged and honored to be here. Um, actually quite nervous. I, I, I don't speak a lot at these kind of events and so it's really kind of frightening. Um, <laughs> a few things before I get off into this thing. I, uh, it really is an honor to be here. It's been a privilege. My wife and my daughter have had a blast here. We've never been to Myrtle Beach and my daughter's never been on the ocean or at least on the beach. They have ocean in Maine, but it's just rocky. And uh, so we've had a great time listening to Sterling, Trish, and Jean. And uh, we have to leave early, so we're not going to hear Charlie. But I'm sure it'll be an awesome speech talk. Um, I was going to say something mean about Jay because he picked on me all weekend. But uh, I try to take the spiritual high ground and not really do that. Um, <laughs> you know, not that he's not a spiritual. I am. So I'm just not going to go there. But it was interesting. <laughs> The, uh, I'm sure the other speakers got I haven't talked to them, but inside our envelope there was a little letter, a welcome letter, and um, I've never seen one of these before, and it was very interesting the way they worded it. Uh, in, that, in, in one of the paragraphs was saying that uh, James only has 63-minute tapes, and uh, that's my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> James only has 63-minute tapes, so please make sure you don't speak over 63 minutes so they get to hear everything, but really the interpretation is, shut up after an hour. And, uh, but they worded it very well. And then the other thing was, we heard your tape and we really were impressed that you didn't use any profanity. And so we assumed that you believed that we believe that, you know, blah, 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 please. And basically the interpretation was, don't be cussing up here. So I think Jay's a control freak, you know, just me personally. And, uh, so, so I was going to cuss like a drunken sailor for three hours and just see what happened, you know. I know it'd kill him. I just know it. I, uh, I really think the only, per- the only reason he asked me is because he wanted someone shorter at the conference. That's personal what I believe. Uh, right, now that I took the spiritual high ground, we'll move on. I actually met Jay last March. A bunch of us up in Maine put a conference on, and uh, one of our less sober members invited him up. So, you know... <laughs> I gotta stop. This is getting too fun. Now, I am from Maine. Um, my sobriety day is March 6, 1993, and my home group is the It's in the Book Big Book Group, meets in Camden, Maine. Uh, proud member of that group. Uh, it's an excellent home group. Uh, if you come there, you will be welcomed. You'll be invited for coffee after the meeting. Um, I believe in a good home group. Uh, home group really saved me. I really needed to be part of a group when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I, like I said, I'm not from Maine. I got sober in Arizona. That's where I met my wife. Yeah, I, only an alcoholic moves from the northwest, I mean the southwest to the northeast. I mean, this is like from the desert to the, to the you know, to Maine. It's like going to camp. It's just ridiculous, really. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a year sober when I did that, so I should tell you a lot about where I'm at. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. If you get nothing out of this talk, I tell you, you'll know that I love Alcoholics Anonymous with all my heart. It saved my life. I wouldn't be here. My family wouldn't be back together. Uh, I wouldn't have what I have. And, um, and the funny thing, you know, the interesting thing is I never even wanted to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I was forced here by my parole officer. Um, and so I, I wasn't even a willing participant in my early meetings. I, was, I begrudgingly went to these meetings and got my sheet signed and... Uh, 
and here I sit. You know, um, amazing stuff. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous has immense power. And the one thing I could not deny when I walked into the rooms was that there was love here that I had never experienced, you know, from strangers. My own family wouldn't even spit on me when I came in AA, and total strangers were just pulling me up out of the gutter. And I'll never forget that. And I think that's very important when the new man walks in or the new woman walks in the rooms. I, uh, I grew up in California, which, you know, everyone's talking about, I think they're talking about West Virginia because they're alcoholics. I think if you're from California, you're supposed to be an alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> I, I grew up in Northern California, a place called Stockton. It's, it's an industrial town, and I grew up from a, uh, I had a good home. I can't blame my, my alcoholism on my home. Uh, my mom's an alcoholic, and I, alcoholism was around, but I was treated with a lot of love and a lot of respect by my family, uh, almost too much. And uh, you'll hear it because uh, my mother loved me so much, it almost killed me, you know. Uh, but what happened for me was, in the household that I grew up in, it was a lot of beer drinking and a lot of social drinking. And my dad had built a bar behind our house. We had a patio, and then it was a covered porch, and then it was a bar with stools and bar signs. And my, my parents were part of an organization. It's a hobby, but it's called Beer Can Collectors of America. It's, there may be some past members sitting in here tonight, but it's a real live organization. I'm talking back in the 70s here. And uh, BCCA, and they used to go to conventions. So they would come to conventions like these and trade beer cans. It was like... Uh, you know, so I grew up in like old dumps finding old beer cans, you know, and, uh, and in our living room was just old beer, beer cans and beer signs, and, uh, and so drinking was just totally accepted, you know, and I think for me, and, and I think this mirrors a lot of alcoholics, and I used to think it's because I was short, because believe it or not, I've always been this size, but... <laughs> I was always the smallest in my class, and I always thought, you know, like I always felt like I had two left arms, you know. I always felt like I was different, you know. And when I first started drinking, and I, I don't, I can't really vividly remember, you know, but I know that I started drinking around 10, between 10 and 12 is when alcohol was, I was, it was okay for me to drink at these parties that my mom and dad would have. If I got drunk, I mean, I had pictures of me when I was 11, balancing a glass on my head, and you know I was drunk, and they took all kinds of pictures. That was the funniest thing, you know. And, uh, and that's just the house I grew up in. And um, my alcoholism was progressing, and I didn't even know it. Um, and I, I'm not going to get into, you know, I could tell you every detail, but I'm going to tell you what happened for me is from the time I was between 10 and 12 and the time I was 18, uh, nothing of significance was happening because of my alcoholism except that there were some, some, like, things that I wasn't catching that I should have noticed. And I only catch them in hindsight is that, when I used to go to these parties on the weekends, football games, after the football games, they'd go out in the desert and drink these kegs. And this is, I'm living in Tucson, Arizona now. We moved around 14. And I would be one of the, I, I never left a party when there was still beer in the keg. I, that was one thing that I, I didn't even realize that. But when I look back, I was never one of those guys who said, you know, it's 11 or 12, I've got to work tomorrow, or I've got to get up, I've got to study or something. I, I was just one of the, I hung out around the keg, you know. And then when that started to get dry, we'd go buy more. And that was my history. And I graduated somehow. I, I, you know, I, I was a gymnast in high school, so I was in sports. Uh, but my drinking was starting to become an issue. And it was starting to become where my family was starting to say things, you know, like my mom would say, if I don't want you driving home. If you go to a party and you drink too much, sleep in your car. Because many times I would come home and my car would be up on the curb or run over the mailbox. And my mom would rather, she knew she couldn't tell me not to drink because she was a drunk. 
I wouldn't have gone for that. But she would say, just stay there and drink. And so I had like the green light, you know, to drink, and I took it. And at the age of 18, 1980, you know, I did this. I made this decision, and I think I look back. We've all made decisions like this. I made a decision not to go to college. Um, I was going to take off a year. So that was I'm 41. That was like 23 years ago. That's been a long year. You know. Um, I just decided, you know, I'm not going to do that, you know. So I moved in with a bunch of other guys who thought like I thought and uh, became a daily drinker. And I was a functioning alcoholic at that age because I, could, I would definitely had to drink every day. And it, the thought of not drinking never even occurred to me. But it was like that when you're young, 18, 19, 20, those years, it was like a lot of fun mixed with some drama. And so I couldn't really... I drank with guys who were a little bit worse than me. So I like... I had certain, like, if I ever get like Norman, I'll stop drinking. You know, well, I was never going to get that bad. So I always put these people ahead of me, like, and uh, at the age of 21, I, uh, I got involved in other substances, and I was drinking daily, and I was painting houses, and I was engaged to this woman, and my life was starting to unravel around me. And I'm one of those alcoholics, and you won't be surprised if I start breaking out into a southern accent. I'm that type of alcoholic and just try to fit in anywhere and act like I belong there. And so I was living this double life and nobody knew it. And I got into this financial uh, situation that was just you know, beyond my control. And, and I don't want to talk about it too much except that I was dealing drugs and using the, the substance I was dealing. And if you're a businessman, it's not really a good way to work a business. And so I got into this deep financial debt and I wouldn't tell anybody. I would not tell my fiance, I wouldn't tell my friends, I wouldn't tell anybody. And at the age of 21, I made this decision to kill myself one night. And, um, and I'm aware of that when around our area, we have a lot of young people coming in. And it bothers me when people say, you know, like, well, why are you here? You know, you're too young to be here because at the age of 21, I wanted to kill myself. And if that isn't as bottom as I need to get, I don't know what is. And uh, so I took my roommate's car because I didn't want to kill myself in my own car. <laughs> so I took my roommate's car I cut off a piece of hose and this wasn't a cry for help thing it was like I'm really going to do the deal and uh, I think back at it now you know and I'm thinking how sad that must be just you know I, the, the emptiness within me was just I, I was just a hollow man and uh, drove out to the desert and duct taped it up and ran the fumes in and I was running it you know I was sitting in there probably 30 minutes I started writing all these letters, you know, and I got down to this letter box to my mom, and I was bawling. And the will to live was a little bit stronger than the will to die for just a brief moment, and I stumbled out of the car and decided not to do that. And, um, but I still had this financial problem. I owed all this money, so I walked around the desert trying to think of an idea of how I could get money. And um, so I drove into town the next day and robbed the bank. <laughs> I, I say it like that because that's about as casual as it made. And that's, I mean, I pulled up to the bank, I wrote a note, walked in, and robbed it. And uh, just so you know, you're not dealing with a gangster. I got fifty dollars in my first bank robbery. <laughs> now, and I got fifty dollars because I wrote on the note, "I have a gun. Give me fifty dollars." And. Uh, It took me a long time to ever say that in front of people. My wife actually is the one who started telling me I should say that because I was trying to keep that a secret for a while. 
uh, I mean, the lady slid a $50 bill over me and looked at me, and I, she should have just reached over and slapped me and said, go home. But, uh, but I got my $50, and, you know, I was happening. Uh, got my car, or my roommate's car. Of course, I went around banks in my car, except, you know, same car I was trying to kill myself in. And I drove about a mile, I thought, and I ain't going to pay my bills, <laughs> you know. So I bought a 12-pack of Budweiser, which I think made sense. And, uh, and it's like 10 in the morning, I drank about three or four of them, and I said, well, I guess I could just drive across town and do another one. I, so I drove across town and robbed another one and got all the money I needed and uh, went home and acted like nothing happened. You know, I mean, like nothing happened. Paid all the bills on the way home and came home and still had a pocket full of money and uh, had a lot of money and uh, took my fiance shopping and she didn't, you know. <laughs> went to Vegas. I mean, I just, you know, so, and I went to work the next day. That's the funny thing, you know. I, uh, I just went to work the next day. And the interesting thing is there's a friend of mine. I, talk, I, I don't talk about him very much and he's not alive anymore, but him and I, before I decided to kill myself, had talked about committing a crime and we, we were all going to plan it. We were, him and I were both in the same situation and we were going to do it and we decided, he says, I can't do that. I said, me neither. I dropped him off and then the next day I did this. And when I showed up to work the next day, they had heard on the radio about some guy had robbed two banks and he thought it was me. And I said, come on, I wouldn't do that. That's crazy. You know? He says, yeah, I thought so. And, uh, six months later, I'm working the same job. I run out of money. I tell my boss, I said, hey, I got to go into town for some business. I drive into town, rob a bank, come back, you know. You know, I really thought that, that I wouldn't get caught. You know, I just thought, I need money. I'll just go get it, you know. And I, and I wasn't going to hurt anybody. You know, I wasn't going to do that. I was just going to scare them. You know, like that's better, okay, you know. Well, two weeks later, I came home. Or about a week and a half later, I came home from work, and I went to the refrigerator to grab a beer. My roommates were in the other room, and there was a picture of me from the paper. It wasn't my, it didn't say my name. It was just a picture of me coming out of the bank like, hey. <laughs> and, uh, and it said, you know, this guy's wanted for three bank robberies, 8-8 crime, $5,000 reward. And so I take it off. Of course, now I've, like my heart is sunk into my ankles, and I'm like, and I, so I'm trying to compose myself, and I take it off, and I take my beer, and I go into the room, and I go, what's this, you know? And they go, yeah, it's crazy. There's a guy who looks just like you <laughs> running around town robbing banks. And I'm like, yeah, that's crazy, man. Unbelievable. And, uh, and the, the height was a little bit off. They said I was 5'7 in that, or I'm almost 5'1. Uh, <laughs> I think when you're threatening to hurt somebody, they think you're bigger, but... Well, somebody had seen that, and uh, two weeks later, well, not even two weeks later, but within a week or so, um, a knock on the door, and I went, and it was one of those days I wasn't going to work, and I was, I thought I'd woken up, and the knock woke me up, and so I was in my underwear, and I ran out to the door, and I thought it was my girlfriend, and there's three guys in a suit, in suits, not one suit, that'd be kind of weird, but... <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> I really would be, but anyway, so these three guys, and the first thing in my mind, and this is no lie, the first thing I'm thinking, man, I hope they're selling me Bibles. Because <laughs> I knew, I just knew the gig was up, and uh, they said, uh, Brian Percox, and I said, yeah, and they said, FBI, we have a warrant for your arrest. And the very next feeling was this feeling of immense relief 
of pressure. It was like the game's over. You know, it really felt like I was like it was. It felt good uh, until they put the cuffs on. And then it was back to the old games. But I, for that moment, I'll never forget that moment. And I do a lot of work in the prison system with a lot of guys, and I've talked to a lot of them, and they have the same feeling, like they're running this game, and then they get caught, and they feel like it's done, and they can finally get, get real with people. And, uh, but as soon as they put the cuffs on, it was like the old Brian came back, and I was, you know, shooking and jiving and trying to be somebody I wasn't. And, you know, my, my, three days later, my dad, I went to get in rain, my dad bailed me out. My mom and dad got me a lawyer. I mean, my mom and dad just loved me to death. You know, I was, I'm the youngest of four boys, and my, my, it was like, when I was, when I was five, it was five, seven, nine, and eleven, and my brother Chucky, who was seven, died of leukemia. And, uh, and so I was the youngest, and my mom, I think my mom did everything in her power not to see me die. You know, she didn't want to bury another son. I really believe that today. I used to have a lot of resentments against her for the way she tried to control my life. Truth is, she buried a boy, you know, and she just wanted me to be okay. Um, so I took advantage of that, and they got me a lawyer, and uh, and so you know I'm really insane. I'm not going to get into my whole prison story, but I will tell you, I was going to trial for these bank robberies, and this lawyer said, he sat me down one day, and I became, I was drinking heavy now, and he said, Brian, you are going to go to prison. There is no way you can rob three banks and not go to prison. The only thing we have is that you've never committed any felonies and that maybe they'll have leniency and you won't get that much time. Well, all I heard was my life is over. That's all I heard. That's the only thing I, I you know, heard that day. And so I just started drinking like a madman. And uh, I was doing all kinds of crazy things. And I was about a month from going to trial. And I made this decision on a Friday afternoon sitting around drinking, thinking, you know, I'm going to prison anyway. Looked over my roommate and said, hey, can I use your car? i got to go to the bank. <laughs> and he flipped me the keys. Like, it was, like, I don't know what he was thinking. I'm sure he was thinking, there's no way he's going to rob a bank while he's on bond going to trial with these other bank robberies. But sure enough, so I went and did this other bank robbery. And at least I was able to party from like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday they came and got me. And, and I was never to get out for the next six years. And, uh, and uh, really, thank God I didn't get out because I was trouble. You know, I was just, I was going down. I mean, I was already past going trouble, but I was like, someone's going to get hurt, and it probably was going to be me. I did nothing in prison to try to, you know, do any recovery. I didn't go to group therapy. They, they, I didn't go to AA meetings. I didn't go to CA meetings. I didn't go to uh, counseling. I didn't do anything but make wine, gamble smuggle weed and, and just be the same person I was. You know, I didn't do anything to try to better my life, which is totally amazing I'm sober today because I just had this attitude, this major chip on my shoulder, and I just wanted to survive prison. And I got out, I say six years, it was five years, eight months. It felt like six years. And, uh, and I did this thing that, <sighs> if, you're new, it is, if you're new, right, and you're trying to stay sober, don't do this. Because what I, I got out, and I was about 28 years old, and a friend of mine had got a hold of my mom and said, hey, you know, Brian's getting out. He'll be out for the summer. We'll have our 10-year high school reunion, and uh, we should go. And so my mom wrote me a letter, because my mom and dad stayed in contact this whole time, and, and I did time in, like, Michigan and uh, Terre Haute, Indiana, because I was just all over, but they'd come and see me. And I don't think if you've spent the last six years in prison going to your high school reunion is a really good idea. 
Yeah, I, I just don't think that you're like the winner in the circle. You know, I, I, I don't know what was going through my mind, but somehow I thought that'd be a good idea. And so, and I wasn't trying to drink because I had parole, and then I had some probation. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to do the right thing. You know, really, that's a lie. Hold on, let me just clarify what I just lied to you. I was going to not do drugs, but I was going to drink a little bit and try to control it. Because I really didn't think I was an alcoholic. And my professor was, he was, I didn't know, but he had been in AA at the time. Um, so I went to this high school reunion, and I walked in, and we had a big, I had one of those overachieving schools where people are like lawyers and doctors, and everybody had their family and their kids. And I'm 28 years old, I'm driving, I'm living in my parents' house, I've been out of prison about two months, and I'm dri- I got close from seven years ago, I got the same haircut seven years ago. And I'm driving up in like a 76 Malibu uh, that's just all rusted out. And I walk in there, I'm looking around, and everyone knows where I've been. And some people are going, hey, how you been? Where have you been? <laughs> and I'm like, I was working for the government for a few years. Uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, I was there socializing about maybe 15 minutes, and I went shoom, right to the bar you know, with all the other losers that night. And we sat around judging everybody. You know, it was kind of fun, actually. But <laughs> And once I started drinking, you know, my thing with drinking is once I open that door, once I start putting booze in me, you know, I, I don't have any control of the amount I'm going to drink. I just don't have any control. I mean, once I'm, I have a, my body reacts different to booze, you know. I didn't know it at the time. I would know it now. And uh, so I got drunk that night, and I started drinking again, and then I ended up getting my, uh, what they call a violation. I ended up getting, I didn't, I wasn't doing what they wanted me to do, which was stay sober. And uh, my professor said, that, you know, he called me up one day and he said, I was out eight months. So here I've been down for almost six years. I get out for eight months and my freedom was my most important thing. And I gave it all up for booze. And the doctor doctor talks about make the supreme sacrifice. I was willing to make that supreme sacrifice, my freedom. And I moved out of my parents' house because I was moving up the corporate ladder and just, you know, my professor called me and he said, you know, I need to see you. You, you tested positive for three urine, urine tests. And uh, I said, well, Tim, I'm probably not going to come into your office. He says, well, if you do that, I'll have a warrant for your arrest. I said, well, do what you got to do. But if you think I'm just going to willfully just walk in and then you take me to prison, it ain't going to happen. You'll have to find me. And by the way, I'm moving from where we last knew I was at. And so I moved that night and uh, was on the run for three months. And, of course, you know, I wasn't a smart guy I stayed at the same job like they like they couldn't find me right <laughs> and uh, I was a pest control operator at this time and so I had a company truck and uh, I got arrested at 7-eleven coming out and you know, Marshall's arresting me and it was just you know I thought I was just going to keep doing this, you know. I thought that's what it was going to be. That's my life. And I just didn't see that. I, I could not see any other way to live. This just seemed normal for me, and, uh, which is really scary, you know, like this seemed normal. And they arrested me, and I had to call my family one more time, and my mom would not accept my call. The nerve of her. And I got a letter about four days later. I still have this letter. And... Uh, it was a letter, and my mom had run and smiling on me. They told her what to do. And the letter was saying, I love you so much that I'm not willing to allow you back into our house. You cannot come home. You're not welcome here. I'm not going to watch you die. When you get out, you're on your own. And I was so mad about that letter. 
you know, years later, when I was writing my four step, she was the number one on my list. And what I came to realize is I made my mom write that letter. I put the pen in my mom's hand and made her write her youngest boy disowning her. What kind of alcoholic does that? You know, when I went to make amends to my mom, and I know the words could never repay that kind of damage, you know. And I just sat there and said, Mom, I, I cannot believe I made you do that. You know. Because she felt a lot of guilt about that. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has allowed me to heal that relationship. You know, I've been able to heal that with my mom. You know, and, uh, and I can't repay that. You know, I can't repair that. The only thing I can repair is by daily, you know, like what I do on a daily basis, my mom and my dad, you know, because, you know, and I didn't really know it. I thought I knew it then, but when my daughter was born, about three months after she was born, three months, I'm looking down at this child, and for the first time in my life, I felt unconditional love, like I'd never felt it before. And I thought, this child can do nothing wrong, nothing that I would ever stop loving her. And I broke down crying and I called my mom and said, Man, mom, I you know, I I had made another amends to my mom that day because I you know, I don't know how hard it must have been for her to write that. I could just imagine and uh, so I spent another year in prison and uh, and it was true. A year later I got out and I didn't have anything. You know, I was twenty nine years old, I had no no money, they had fifty dollars gate money and the clothes on my back and I didn't have any job skills, I didn't have any friends or relatives that wanted me, and I had to go, I became public law. Public law is when you still have, the federal government still had some control of my life because I still had some parole left, and I don't have any place to live. And so they made me go to this halfway house. So I'm living in this halfway house in downtown Tucson, and I'm mad. I'm mad at my mom, mad at my dad, mad at my brother because he won't help me. I'm mad at some of my friends who don't want me around because, you know, I'm such a stand-up guy they should really see I've changed. And, uh, and the interesting thing is right before I left, I told this guy I was living in a cell with, I said, hey, I said, here's all my stuff. I, you know, I, you accumulate little things, and, like a racquetball racket and whatever it was, a radio. And I said, here's all this stuff. Go sell this for some commissary. And he said something to me, which was true, but I didn't believe it at the time. He said, you know, Brian... Actually, he said, you know what, Shorty? That's what they called me in prison, Shorty. Never, I didn't know my name for almost seven years, you know. He said to me, he says, hey, Shorty, he says, I'm going to leave all this stuff over here, and when you come back in a week or so, I'll, you can have it back. And I was so mad, I said, I ain't coming back. And he says, guys, like, you always come back. I was out in that half house three days, and I started drinking. And you know what? It made sense to me. I was justified in drinking. I deserved to drink. I only had sixty dollars. I had to. Spend, I was supposed to go look for a job. I had fifteen days to get a job, or they're going to send me back. The stress was just killing me. I had to drink. You know, earlier I'd been in this outpatient program, and they talked about how alcoholism. I was powerless over alcohol. Hey, that was like my out. If I'm powerless, if I drink, it's not my fault. I'm powerless over alcohol. My professor never bought that. <laughs> The, the thing is, I started drinking on the third day I was out. By the fifth day, and I would, what I would do is I would drink. I'd leave at 8, and I'd go buy some beer, and I would drink for a few hours. I'd stop drinking at noon. I never went to the A meeting I was supposed to go to. I just signed my name on this A meeting thing on the sheet. And I'd come back around 5 with a pack of gum and everything and act real cool, and I'd get through. But all night, I wanted more, I wanted more booze. 
all night I was like, I wish I could get out. It was a lockdown facility. Well, the third night, I remember that, the last two nights, and the third night, I'm like, I'm not coming back without booze tonight. So I brought a pint of tequila with me. It was a Friday night. I'm at this halfway house. So I've been out a week now. And, of course, you know, you give an alcoholic a pint of tequila. It's like, you know, I got drunk. And I got drunk, and of course I got drunk. And, and I wasn't sharing with people, and that made someone mad. So they went and told the officer that I was drinking. And they came and woke me up, and I tested positive, And they... So it was a Friday night, so on Monday morning, my professor came to see me, and they called my name with a loudspeaker, and I brought all my little stuff I had, which is a you know, little duffel bag full of stuff, and I brought it up, and my professor said to me, his name is Tim. He's just the most wonderful man I ever met. I used to hate him, but he said some wonderful words that day. He said, Brian, why don't you sit down? He goes, what's that? And I said, that's my stuff. He says, what's that stuff for? I said, well, you'll probably send me back to prison. He says, why don't you sit down let's talk about this? And he says, you know something? guy who knew me when I was 22, when I, he wrote my pre-sentence report, he violated me, and he was not like a friend of mine, and he said something to me, he said, you know, Brian, you've been looking at your drug addiction, like that's the problem, but you're an alcoholic, he says, I'm, and he broke his anonymity that day, I didn't know he was an A, but he said, I've been sober and alcoholic Anonymous for seven years, you, my friend, are an alcoholic, and unless you start treating your alcoholism, you are going to end up in and out of these institutions the rest of your life. Because I'm not going to violate you. I'm going to recommend to the parole commission that you go to an A meeting every day for the next four months here. And if you miss one meeting or you get one write-up, I'm going to send you back. But you have a break here, and you better take advantage of it. I thought I won the lottery. <laughs> I mean, I thought, what a deal, you know. Not that I was scared to go to prison, because I'm not afraid of going doing time. But I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to hear my cellmate, you know, for one thing. And I just, you know, he's like... <laughs> I think you get tired after a while, and I was getting tired, and so I started to go to AA. 29 years old, I went to my first AA meeting, right, you know, really went. I didn't just have a friend sign the letter. I really went to the meeting. I'm going to tell you right now, I was more scared of going to my first AA meeting than I was going to prison. And I was only 22 years old when I went in. I'm only five foot one, weigh 110, maybe if I'm lucky. But I was so scared of alcoholics. I didn't know what it meant to be sober. I didn't know how you could live sober. I'm like, what do you do? All my life, my life is over. Like I had some really good life before, but, you know. Like <laughs> uh, that line in the big book about a spiritual life or living the way we've been living. You know, what's your, you know, only an alcoholic has to think about that. Well, you know, live the way I've been living or find a God in my life. I don't know, you know, let me see. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it was for me. And so I went to this meeting, and I walked in. I could not, I was a shoe guy. I could not look anybody in the eye. And I, I, it was Tucson, Arizona. It was a Northwest Alano Club. It's not around anymore, but I tell you, the men in that meeting saved my life. And they didn't judge me. There's a line in the big book that says, no matter how far down the scale, you know, it says, this is what it says, no one is too discredited to be cordially welcomed if they mean business. I didn't even mean business, and I was still welcomed. I mean, no one has sunk too low been too discredited. They knew I was from the halfway house. They knew I was a prisoner, you know, getting out. And they came up, and it was interesting of that my ego was so, I was so weird at this time that I couldn't look you in the eye, right? So I'd look at your shoes, and they'd say, hey, good to see you. You're new around here. Hey, my name is so-and-so. My name is so-and-so. Try to give me numbers. You want a cup of coffee? And I'm like, you know, like, I'm thinking in my mind, what do they want? I didn't have anything, but what do they want? So I would go to the bus stop. I didn't have a car. Imagine that. But I went to the bus stop. It'd be like 110 out in Tucson, and I'd be like dying of heat stroke. And they would, you know, I drank about 18 cups of coffee at the meeting. So, 
sweat, like coffee's coming out of my ears, and I'd, they'd pull up in their car, and it'd be like a Cadillac, and it'd be like, you know, their, their mustache would be like, you know, like icicles off, it'd be so cold, and I'd be sweating, and they'd say, hey, you want to ride back to the half house? And I'd say, no, I'm okay. <laughs> I got this covered, don't worry. Because I just didn't know what they wanted. I didn't know what, I didn't know, I didn't get it, you know, that the love was just so unconditional. But I kept coming back, I kept coming back. Around three months, I was getting out of there, and uh, I was getting scared. I wanted to be sober for the first time in my life. I had cut off everybody from my, you know, my family still didn't want anything to do with me, which is understandable, but, you know, I was like, I'm doing good, come on, just get me back in the house. But they weren't willing to let me back in. And I was scared, and I had this temporary sponsor, this guy Jason. And uh, Jason was one of those kind days, like two, two years sober. He was an evangelical guy, you know, two years trying to save the world. And uh, I think he cared more about my sobriety than I did, actually. But he really wanted me to get sober. And uh, I said, Jason, I'm really scared. I'm getting out in 30 days. I don't know what I'm going to do. He says, why don't you bring that up a day? And he, I said, bring it. He said, just talk about it, you know. So I, I, I just shared with the group. I said, you know, I've been coming to these meetings for three months. I'm getting out in a month, and, and uh, I'm digging ditches for five bucks an hour. I can't afford to get my own place. I'm not looking for handouts, but I'm really scared. And uh, about, I don't know, a couple of days later, this old guy came up. I just wasn't that old. Let's clear that up right now. <laughs> we got a lot of old timers around here. I mean, but in Maine, they, they all move from Maine down here somewhere because uh, to find anybody sober over 20 years is a rarity up in our area. Too cold for him. <laughs> but it really is. It's freezing up in Maine. They all go to Florida or Arizona. And so this guy, so this guy comes up. His name was Ted. And he had a 10 gallon hat and he drove this white Cadillac. And he'd probably try to pick me up a few times, give me rides. And he walked up to me and he said, hey, son. He says, uh, I heard what you said the other day. And if you want, I own a recovery ranch about 30 miles outside of town. And we raised quarter horses and thoroughbreds. And I need a jockey to condition my horses before I send them up to Turf Paradise. And, uh, and you're about that size. And if you want a job, you can come up there. You can work in the barn, go to two A meetings a day. I'll give you room and board and $50 a week. And everybody's in recovery, and there's about 50 patients there, and all the staff are in AA. And all you got to do is, and I said, I'm scared of horses. <laughs> He's like, well, I didn't ask you if you were scared. I'm saying, do you want a job? He says, we'll teach you how to ride. And so uh, it didn't take me long. I said, yeah, you know, I'd like that very much. And uh, sure enough, you know, and I didn't know this, but this lady that had been coming in on Sunday mornings doing a big book meeting, um, she would come in on Sundays and bring the message of AA. You know how we do. We carry the message places. She was actually working in the barn. So I was going to end up working for her. I didn't know this, but that's how it ended up. So she came and picked me up, and I went to live in this ranch. Uh, and what a gift to be put right in the middle, you know, at a very desperate time of my, of my recovery. And I did what I do with all gifts. You know, I took advantage of it. I did learn to ride horses, and I can say right now, I, uh, my wife and I just built a barn this year. We got 15 acres out in Maine, and we just finished our barn. And uh, it feels like it does when I got sober, because you know, we, I used to go to the barn and feed the horses, and my wife was, you know, there too. We don't get into that, but that's how where we met. We met in recovery. Uh, we'll be nine years New Year's Eve. We'll celebrate our nine-year anniversary. Uh, but uh, the thing is, like, here's the thing with horses. First of all, I don't, I really. My wife's gone now because my daughter was crying, but I don't really like horses. All right. 
I, mean, I think they're cute and everything, but they scare me, you know. Uh, I got bit by this horse, and this is a true story. The horse was called not to be trusted. Right? Bit me right in the chest. All I was doing, trying to tie him up, leaned over and took a chunk out of me. I got bucked off this. It was the first time I met my wife, Chloe. She had just come there, and uh, I was trying to impress her with my riding skills. And of course, she'd been riding since she was five, so I didn't know what I was doing. And I got bucked. This horse stopped, and I went flying over it, and just like gravel all over my face, and she was laughing. And I'm like, oh, I love this girl, and, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up staying there, and I ended up getting so, you know, I got so, I, I celebrated a year, you know, a year. And uh, I was like the poster A child, you know, like, I mean, literally, it's like sober year. Come out of prison, everybody knew it, you know, at the Alano Club, Brian celebrating a year, everybody came, you know, wanted to, I was like a success story. Man, I was living a lie. You know, I was doing something, at nine months sober, I don't say this, I'm, I'm so ashamed of this. I don't regret it, but I still have some shame around it. Nine months sober, a friend that I had done time with had called me up, and I had shared a cell with this guy for two and a half years, and uh, this is when I first started in my, my sentence, and he was like a, an older brother to me, he really helped me. He called me up and he said, hey, I just got out, I'm in Carlsbad, California, and uh, you know, once you come on over, I said, I don't have the money, he said, I'll get you a round trip ticket, come on over. So I, he flew me over, and I, you know, I just got sucked into this like lifestyle that he was living. He was a drug dealer, so... And uh, nine months over, I started doing drugs in AA. On the ranch. What kind of guys? Like, I mean, that's just the, the epitome of selfishness, man. I mean, that is so... And so, at a year sober, everybody's really happy for me. I looked in the mirror on my year anniversary after everybody celebrated and everybody said how proud they were of me and all this great, you know, stuff. And I just said, yeah, you're just so fake. You ain't changed. You're the same person you were. And uh, two weeks later, I started drinking again. And, uh, you know, it scares me today to know that for two, for, for the next three months, I went to two A meetings a day, and I drank after the second A meeting every day. And if you've ever drinking in an AA meeting, or like been in AA and still drinking, that is the loneliest thing I ever felt in my life. I have never felt lonelier. Oh, I've never felt lonelier. And I stopped doing drugs because I started getting scared. And around, well, right, right, my Friday is March 6, 1993. Around that day, or actually that day, I was, that whole week I had been in my head about, I just, just kill myself. There's no use. Been in AA a year. There's no hope. Or, I, or, I was, or, or, I could move to Phoenix, rob banks, and then move to Vegas and be a gambler. That was an idea. And so I started thinking about that. Yeah, I could probably do 10, 15 bank robberies in Phoenix, get up to Vegas and just live there and just be a poker player. Yeah. Good plan, you know. So what happened is, and this is by the grace of God, and, uh, and I believe this today, because I wasn't going to just say I was not sober. It wasn't going to happen. My pride and my ego was so wrapped up into that. I was not going to do that. I was going to go out. But two guys that I'd become friends with that worked at this ranch sat down with me on March 6, 1993, and I hadn't had a drink yet that day, but I'd been drinking the night before, and the day started, and it, they, this guy, Max, had said, Hey, Brian, how long have you been sober? I go, Max, you're at my year anniversary. I've been sober a year and three months. He says, No, really, how long have you been sober? I said, What are you talking about? And uh, him and I had some words, and... Uh, 
he left, and this guy Kent, he went out and talked to this guy Kent. This is like in the afternoon now, and Kent came back in, and I was going to go to the dog track with Kent that night. I knew it was going to happen. I was going to the dog track, and then Kent was going to drop me off, and I was going to go drink that night. And Kent and Max sat down, and they kind of sat on both sides of me. And Kent says, Brian, how long have you been sober? I said, what are you guys doing? And they just said, how long have you been sober? And I started to say it, and they said, no, shut up. Shut up. We love you way too much to watch you die. We know you've been drinking. And I just broke down. I just, I could not, it was just broken. And I was just saying, I need help. Please help me. And Kent was like the vice president of this recovery ranch. And he called Ted, the guy who owned it. And uh, Ted came and saw me and said, son, he says, uh, you can't drink on this ranch. But you can't work on this ranch. But if you want to be a patient on this ranch, you can stay here. And I said, Ted, I don't have $4,000 a month. He said, I don't want your money. I just want to see you alive. And so I became a patient at the place I was working at. I haven't had a drink since. My life has not been the same since. See, I'm clear today that the man I was ten and a half years ago will drink again. I know that to my heart. I had to have spiritual awakening. What I did was I started to go to meetings and I went and talked to this guy named Kenny. And this guy, Kenny, Kenny was a great man and he was one of those guys, he was 29 years old and he was always my age and I was 30 at times, so he was about a year younger, but he was sober seven years and he was a cowboy. The complete opposite of anyone I would ever hang out with. He drove a big dually truck and he was a welder and he had a big hat, cowboy boots and he was from New Mexico and he spoke with a twang. I'm Kenny, I'm an alcoholic, you know. And he always said, he always talked about God and he always talked about, he was just a man of peace. And everybody around Kenny was getting better. And so I went up to Kenny and I don't know why, I just said, Kenny, will you sponsor me? He says, oh, I'd love to sponsor you. He says, I'll come out and see you. And he came out to see me that day, that week actually, it was like Thursday, I think I saw him on a Tuesday. Thursday he came out, we had an in-house AA meeting and he sat down and he said, we're not going to the AA meeting. We're going to sit in here and he handed me a big book and he pulled his big book out which was all battered and torn. I tell you right now, I'm a, I'm a reformed big book thumper. You've got to know that right now. And I say reformed, I still believe in the message of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just believe I don't need to thump it. You know, I believe that if you have to thump anything, you don't really believe in it. You know, I believe that to my heart. But that wasn't the case when I was two years sober. You know, when I was two years sober and moved to Maine, I'll tell you some stories. And the old timers up there hated me. You know. Uh, but anyway, so Kenny said, he sat down, he pulled the book open, he talked about the circle and triangle. He said, look here, son. He didn't call me son. He said, look here, Brian. <laughs> Sounded better that way, didn't it? He said, Brian, <laughs> you haven't even been in Alcoholics Anonymous. You've been in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. But there is a program of Alcoholics Anonymous that you haven't even touched. You will not get sober in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're a real alcoholic, you need to be awakened spiritually. And he started to talk to me about this stuff. And I was like, I learned more about Alcoholics Anonymous in that one sitting than I had the whole previous year. And it's not that they didn't say it, it's just I just wasn't hearing it. Because I wasn't going to make amends for the things I'd done. I wasn't going to do what was on the wall. But this guy said, look, if there's any hope for you, you better find this God. And he taught me how to pray. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't say this with any, you know, I'm not proud of this either, but I was a, I was a, borderline atheist agnostic. I mean, I was more atheist than agnostic. I just, you know, I was so anti-God and I had every reason to say there was no God and I lived my life on self-will for so long 
And now this man's telling me that I needed to find a God life if I was ever to hope to have long-term recovery. And the only reason I became a seeker and started praying that night was because I was scared of dying of alcoholism. I said, Kenny, I will do anything not to live and feel the way I've been doing. You know? He says, well, let's read. Read page 84 to 88 every day, which is steps 10 and 11. And, of course, he tricked me into praying. I learned that later on. And he tried to teach me how to pray, and we started to go through these steps. And I am going to tell you right now, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous saved me. Because not only was I able to see... I mean, I remember kneeling and holding, holding his hand and doing a third step prayer with this man, thinking in my mind, and I was about a month sober at the time, thinking, this is really weird. You know, and I was hoping my, my roommate didn't see this. My roommate was a schizophrenic. He didn't even know my name, and I was so, like invested in how he felt about me that I was afraid I like jimmied the door so he couldn't walk in while I did this prayer with this man who was so kind to give me his time I mean my ego was so wrapped up into what people thought about and so we did this prayer I started I did a four step I, I spent like three weekends at his house doing this fifth step that was the moment for me I was three months sober and I just shared everything in my life I'm talking everything the secrets I was going to the grave with this whole hideous thing that I wrote down, you know. And he said, you know, Brian, go home and be alone with God for an hour. You know, he brought me to the pages I'm supposed to read. And I walked up to this mountain. I've been praying for three months, still didn't believe, still thought every time I hit my knees, I'm faking it, I'm faking it. He said, just keep doing it. I went up there and I was alone for an hour. And I, as I started to walk down, I knew for the first time, first time in my life, that God was with me. That... That feeling has never left me. And I'll forever be grateful for that. And if I'd have done what I wanted to do, which is just hang out, drink coffee, and hit on newcomers, you know, you, I wouldn't be here tonight. You know? But I was so desperate to seek this power. And I felt the presence of God. He got me in the six and seven. I started making amends. My wife and I left the ranch because it got really weird. It got into power and prestige. We left. Moved into town. I didn't have any money. I had nothing. I just left. I, you know, we said, we're leaving. I found a guy who owned a halfway house, and uh, he had known me around the halls, and he said, look, you can come be my maintenance guy, which really was a mistake, but he let me come anyway. I'm not, a, I'm not good when Sterling was talking about that. I was like, yeah, that's me. You know, I'm so poor with that. I went and lived in this halfway house, and Chloe and I, we just did life. You know, we did sobriety. We just we did what we were supposed to do. You know, we started. We, I was going to a meeting a day. Uh, I was going into, you know, my first time I went into prison, it was the youth detention center. Uh, my sponsor tricked me again. I was like six or seven months sober. He picked me up and he says, we're going to a meeting tonight and you're speaking. I said, whoa. He says, look, it's not even debatable. We're just going. I said, where's it at? He says, you'll see. We pull into this, you know, youth detention center. It's like Constantino Wire. And I'm like, man, I'm not ready to go in there. He says, oh, you need to go in there. And I went in there and there was about 10, 15 young kids, you know, and I told my story and I don't even know what I said. I was so scared. Um, but I know this, when I, walked out of the, when I walked out of the prison that day, I felt like, and it was like, that's the deal. That's what we do. We give freely. That selfless act saved me. And he taught me, he got me in the service work. He said, this is about being selfless. If selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our problems, then selflessness and God-centeredness is the solution to our problems. And for me, the Alcoholics Anonymous has done slowly what booze used to do quickly. That's the ticket. And I had to let it work in my life. Because the same feeling I used to get with a drink, I get on a daily basis being a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That sense of peace and comfort and ease that I used to get, 
the sense of, in Dr. Sanders says, the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once with a few drinks, that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous if you do the work. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that I had to work for my sobriety. Somehow I thought it was like everything else was supposed to be a gift for me. And a year sober, I decided to move to Maine. And, uh, let me start, you know? I was a year sober. Chloe was about a year and a half sober, and we moved to Maine. And I moved to Maine on pure faith. Her stepdad had a construction company said, you can be a carpenter. <laughs> you know. I, thought, I think I oversold my skills, but I thought I could swing a hammer and do a measuring tape, you know, but that was about it. So I went to Maine. I moved to Maine. We, you know, we had a place, and we were going to start an AA meeting, and we were, you know, we were going to save Alcoholics Anonymous, and we were like on fire. You know. we, were, we were young and enthusiastic, and we, you know, and we did everything we wanted to do. We didn't save AA. It didn't need to be saved, but we, we got right in the middle. Started going, I got a sponsor. We started going to district meeting. We started doing big book tapes at our house. Started listening to Joe and Charlie. These guys, Joe and Mark. And we would listen to these tapes and these people. We, pretty soon we had like 30 people at our house. It's like, wait a minute. We've got to get a, get a church. So we started a group. Uh, that's the group that we're part of today. I just fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I started sponsoring people, which was really scary. Um, I killed my first sponsee. Uh, guy told me that you kill a few. And, I, and he said it jokingly, but really the guy did die. And, and I'm not, you know... It was like one of those, I worded that wrong. He came to me, and he was in one of those turmoil things, you know, uh, with his wife, and he wasn't willing to do what we were doing. 